When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Manchester's indie rock and roll station. Excess Manchester. The Excess Manchester Long Player. An iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Excess Manchester. Welcome, welcome. Roll up, roll up to another Excess Long Player. Another classic album discussed with one of the people that made it. And we're going all Britpop on today's podcast as I talk to Nigel Clark off of Dodgy about their third album, Free Peace Suite. Absolutely loved talking to Nigel. He's one of those people that you can just tell his brain is moving at a million miles an hour. And he shared some fantastic stories about the making of this album and what it was like being in Dodgy in the early days, including a fantastic story about refusing to put promoters on his guest list when Dodgy was first starting out, which didn't make it onto the radio show version of this show, but... It's a little added bonus for those who listen to the podcast. Before we get stuck into the chat with Nigel, this was a massive album when it came out in June of 1996, and it is arguably Dodgy's most successful album, getting to number seven, if not the one that potentially Nigel considers their finest work, as you will hear in today's podcast. If you've not listened to this album in a while, and you're maybe only familiar with Good Enough, I mean, who isn't familiar with Good Enough? Go and have a listen to the album in full. You can find the link in the podcast description. But if you are familiar, sit back and enjoy Nigel Clark talking about dodgy three-piece suite. How are you doing, Nigel? I'm very well, thank you. Cheers for joining us. Now, I want to start off by talking about, well, have I picked the right album here is my first question, because I was looking at the dodgy discography and kind of trying to decide which album to settle on. Finally settled on Free Peace Suite, because it peaked at number seven, went platinum, which I think is your highest performing album. But in your view, when you take a step back and you consider dodgy's albums your discography is this the album that you'd consider to be the most classic if we can call an album the most classic um i've always had a sort of weird relationship with it i just i mean i think for me personally we did a a 25th anniversary of homegrown a couple Mm. of years ago and that album is the sort of complete album in a way that all the songs seem to be from that sort of same pool or river, stream, mm. do you know what I mean? They yeah. feel organic, they feel like that. I think Free Piece Suite was me dipping my foot in and the band dipping our foots in a bit more of a technology. Uh, I mean, you know, it was like we were at the height of drum and bass and Jungle had gone and DJ Shadow and Beastie Boys and Beck and all these things sort of be out there, you know, where people were using loops and stuff. And I think we sort of stretched our wings and went that way as well as writing 
you know, songs that could accommodate Matthew's Keith Moon style drumming. <laughs> Do you think part of your strained, strain, I said strained there, maybe that was a Freudian slip, I meant strange relationship with this album was the pressure that came with it because it was your third album. It came off the back of, as you said, Homegrown, which was a big album, did really well, had a couple of big tunes off it as well. So did you feel a pressure going into the studio and creating this album? It felt like, I think because this was our third album, I think we'd already had one sort of like forgotten album, which was the first one, the dodgy mm. album. Then Homegrown was kind of like, you know, and so, so yeah, the third album would have been our difficult second album if you discounted the first one. I think there was so much going on that I didn't really, and when I, when I think about it now, I didn't really think about much. I was just, I remember it being so busy and going home and having four track tapes of songs and working on old songs and bring that I'd never done and bringing them into the studio the next day and going I think I've got a bit further with this one should we try it so it was a very much of a melting pot of songs from dodgy past and new it was a very you know it was a mixture did it feel like a different experience creating this to what had come before yeah, it did, because like I said, when we've done albums before, we've always done pre-production and, you know, we've always known what what was going to fit on the album. You know, we had an idea of how the songs worked and we'd already done a demo of them, but these hadn't had that. We were busy on tour and we came off tour in possibly the September and we straight into the studio in the October. In fact, we were still sometimes doing gigs while we were in the studio. Things were that busy. It was ridiculous, but... Fortunately, we recorded it really, really close to my house and I just had a baby on mm -hmm. my, my family. We just had a baby boy. And so we were living very close to the studio. So, you know, yeah, just crack on, really. It was just put your head down and get going. Now, I want to get more into Free Piece Suite in a minute. But before I do that, I just wanted to take you right back to the early days, pre-record deal days, because I heard a story that I absolutely loved and I thought I can't talk to Nigel and not bring this up. So this is before you signed a record deal and I heard that there were loads of record execs and A&R types that wanted to come and see you play, potentially sign you. But mm -hmm. there was kind of a block in the way because you refused to put them on the guest list. So they had to pay their way into the gigs. Is that is that true? Yeah. Yeah. I remember I, I just I just thought that I always had this attitude about the music industry that was they wanted us. Obviously, we wanted them and needed them, but I mm. thought it would be better if we did things like that where they would want us more because we made it more difficult for them. So I got a, we used to run the Dodgy Club in Kingston and it only was only there about 18 months. After we'd got the record Lovebirds on, the, or the demo tape Lovebirds on Gary Crowley, um, there started to be a little bit of a buzz. And then record companies would phone my house in Hounslow and say, hi, it's so-and-so from MCA Records. We'd like to put two people on the guest list. And it would be some secretary or PA We've been asked to do it, and I'm going, I'm really sorry, there's no guest list. And they were like, you know, no one does this. <laughs> and so, and even, and I was the doorman, so I'd had that conversation, and I was the doorman at the club, because it was only like, it only held about 150 people maximum. And, you know, the kids could go in, and it was one quid for it, if you had a student card. And, I mean, it was this is like 1989, 1990. 
And yeah, record companies came and I'd just go, £10, please. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, and then they'd see me singing, or probably not even notice. But I just I just thought, you know, that was our living in a way. I was that was that was our living, you know. And I know it sounds a little bit, it does sound a little bit hippie and you know, not hippie, but you know, traveller sort of thing. But it wasn't. It was just I thought we'd take a bit back from the music industry. And similar to when we signed our publishing deal, we when we got the two guys from the head of the publishing companies to play Italian 90 against each other in our local pub. Is that a part of the... Because I get the, the impression from you that maybe you're a little bit fight the power, maybe a little bit anti-establishment. Is that kind of the punk rock side of you coming out? I think it's definitely that. I think I've always been like, well, since I was my, uh, you know, punk breathed life into me, I suppose, mm. as a young person. And I think like, I read something the other day that punk is do it yourself. And, you know, there's a lot to be said about do it for yourself, you know, or, and with others, but do it yourself by encouraging other people. Because I feel that, you know, creating stuff, you've got to see it through yourself or you miss things out. And I felt that when we had control over Dodgy, the band and also what we were what we stood for we enjoyed it more when we relinquished that control and gave it to other people a lot of the fun you never knew how much you were getting paid so you never knew when to celebrate do you know mm. what I mean mm. you know I just wasn't fooled by it really I think I think at the end of the day that's the hard thing sometimes some people grow up quickly and I think I did <laughs> you know in some ways I didn't grow up in every way but in some ways I did Obviously, you have that passion for punk music. I've heard you talking about punk bands you loved before and they've influenced your attitude. Looking at this album specifically, do you think they've influenced the music on this album? Because it's not an album that you listen to and you instantly go, that's a punk album, I don't think. But were those bands that you loved in the mix when you were drawing inspiration for this album? There was very few bands musically, I think, that were musically as sort of adept as dodgy, I suppose, is what I was saying. I mean, you had the Ruts, who were one of my favourite bands, who were really amazing players. I mean, and, you know, in Dodgy, you had an amazing drummer and an amazing guitarist, and we all sang mm. harmonies. And, you know, and I sort of filled in on bass and guitar and wrote on piano and just, you know, I sort of like tried a few things down. But I play them all the same, all the instruments the same. But I suppose the punk thing was, it was more about the energy and more about, you know, going on stage and, you know, really feeling that these people meant what they were saying and that it wasn't a job choice. It was a calling, you know, mm. it was like, I suppose in some ways, I sp- you know, I think so. I think I felt it was more than a job. I thought it was like, a, yeah, yeah, a passion, you know, it's like a passion. I think when you choose to not follow society's general rule that they have for you, do you know what I mean? Mm. And break away and go and do something for yourself. I also feel that you're quite isolated, but you want to shout back to people going, it's okay, you can do it. <laughs> do you know, in a way you can reach the other side and believe in yourself. Ever since that time when we moved from Birmingham or Redditch and Worcestershire to, to London, you know, that next year and a half, then, then I found belief and I found like, you know, it was really lonely i'd lost you know basically lost contact with all my friends mm. you know family and everything really i hadn't lost contact i'd phone them but you know i wasn't going back because i didn't have a car <laughs> <You know? laughs> and i didn't have any money so yeah so i sort of i became to be very possessed not possessive uh what's the word uh you know i just tried to look after the thing you know try to take care of it so you know Essentially, that was its downfall in the end, you know, because I wanted it back and they wouldn't give it me back. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get on to what happened after this album was recorded shortly. But let's go back to the very beginning in the studio, recording this album for the first time, creating the songs, crafting the songs. You, you seem to me, and it's interesting because the way you talk about 
you saw music as a calling and a passion and you wanted to be there because it seemed to me that you've always felt like a band that thoroughly enjoyed what they were doing. And it comes across when you're playing live, when I've seen you live, I think it's like you, you want to be there and you have this energy. When you're looking back at that period of time, because you talk about the stresses of management being there and you've got a new baby in the house, which everyone who's had a baby knows how incredibly stressful that then becomes. Mm-hmm. Was that enjoyment part of your studio experience at the time? Yeah, I mean, I, abs- I, I absolutely loved it. I was just really happy in my life, I suppose, at that time. You know, there was a, a certain amount of completion. I was 27 years old, I think, when we did that. Maybe old, no, I was older than that. I was like 20, 28, 29, so I'd sort of like, and having a child was amazing, and being able to get a studio, which was not just any old studio, it was Wessex Studio, which has got a great history of uh, rock bands and great albums, really. Yeah, I just, I, I found that, you know, I, do you know what? I was so lucky, and I look back, we were so lucky to have spent four or five months in a recording studio every day mm. where someone's making your food, where all you've got to do is work on songs. It's amazing. I mean, was this, and I, was this the first I album you that. did that? Was it the first album that you recorded as a residency? No, no, we'd done, we'd done, Homegrown was done in Rockfield and Ian Brody's studio and Lincolnshire. We'd always done, and, and the first album was done in Park Street in Liverpool, but right. we'd always done that. But this one was me going home at the end of the day and, you know, sort of finishing at, I don't know, not every day, but sort of finishing at about 11 o'clock going home when the other guys would start going out in London. I'd go home and write some more songs or finish something, more ideas for the next day. You know, so I had a, it was a, it was great. though. We had more songs recorded and stuff like that that could have gone on the album. So we were really busy. Did that build up any kind of... Um... What's the word I'm looking for? Any, any kind of tension between you and the band? Because I, I can't remember who it was. I was, I was speaking. I, th- I tell you, what, it was Gordon Mokes from Block Party who was saying that it, it's almost the punishment of the songwriter is at the end of a day's session they have to go and write, they have to go and create, whereas the rest of the band can kind of go out and have a few beers and relax. I, I, you okay with that? Do you kind of take that as that's my role, that's my lot? Well, I happily take it. It's just when it's not take when it's not understood by everybody else, it becomes a problem. You know, or when it's not re- respected or it's not acknowledged, because it is a process. I mean, mm. yes, you might not finish the songs because you don't get time to demo them, but you put that song in front of people, a producer, you know, five or six musicians, engineers, and that's got to come from somewhere, hasn't it? I'm going to ask you to pick a couple of album highlights in a moment, kind of key moments or memories or songs from the album and ask you to kind of try and bring back some memories from those moments, if that's okay. But before we do that, I'm going to throw a song into the mix because obviously we have to talk about Good Enough. Now, Good Enough is the track that you, as a band, are arguably best known for. Do you class that as your finest track? If you could pick one song and go, this is dodgy, would that be the tune you picked? Mm, Probably not. (laughs) Probably, you know. I mean, it was a it bit was... different to the band's other stuff and previous stuff, I guess, wasn't it? Well, this is the thing. I mean, I was, uh, I mean, the way that came about was I was getting into samplers and I had them at home. And I think I wrote that in the summer of 95. So I, and I was living in London and I got my sampler and I looped. I managed to loop a uh, meters drum beat by the meters, you know, Alan Tucson meters. Mm. And uh, I got the drum beat sample, but I couldn't find it on the keyboard. And accidentally, there was the GM sounds, which is the drum sounds on a normal keyboard. And I went looking for, I didn't know where middle C was at the time. I was a bit daft, you know, and I went, boom, 
and the drum beat was like that. So it was literally an accident. And then I had the drum loop and I had this boom, boom, this which was the accident. So, I mean, it's like everybody's like 808, not 808 state, but like, you know, um, New Order and Blue Monday. It was a mistake. Good <laughs> Enough was kind of a, a rhythmical mistake. And then I put a bass on it, went dun, 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 boom. But that, and it was just like, oh, wow, that's like kind of a, and then just put the simple chords on it. And it was, it is like, it's like a chart children's song, really. I mean, it's very simple, but it's a lot of fun. And it's, you know, and the intention was there because I feel that, you know, what gets missed in the song is that, you know, it was a message to my son that I will always believe in you. I will always, you know, because I, I felt that, you know, when I grew up, it wasn't, I wasn't always good enough for everybody. I was like, you know, painted as a, a misunderstood or, you know, or awkward. And I suppose, you know, years ago, I would have been diagnosed with something like ADHD or something, do you know what I mean? Because my son's got it. Hmm. You know, I know that it's it's something that we have similar, you know, we, our minds work very scattily, quickly, you know, and sort of, and, and that's how I was at school. So, you know, I would get told off and, you know, and I just felt that that was the answer for that song. So it was a very a simple message, really. And uh, it, it was a great fun recording because we knew it was a hit. It was really funny, but it wasn't a dodgy song necessarily. And I, I remember playing it to the guys and all the horn section, we were in the, on the I'd played a demo, I'd done a four track demo of it without a chorus and uh, just the groove and all that and, and like, you know, chords and stuff like that and a structure. And the, the horn guys were like, this is brilliant. And the band were like, mm, it's not really dodgy, but, you know, it was one of those that we got in the studio and when Math played it, we liked it. We thought it sounded like, you know, Jackson Sisters, I Believe in Miracles. Yeah. It had all the, you know, it had a lot of soul connotations and that's what we were into. Do you think that kind of cross-genre thing helped it break records? Because I understand it was the most played song on the radio ever when it first came yeah. out. I think it was just, you know, when you when you hear about these terrible things now that radios have a, have a machine that all the songs go into and they work out whether it's going to be radio, a radio-friendly song or something, I don't know. It feels like it was that song, <laughs> that <laughs> ultimate song that got played. I mean, hit the algorithms. It, what, what record, yeah, it hit all. It would bingo on the algorithms, or it would have been. And I think that what happened was all the radio stations in the country. They all obviously in one week have to say what were what their radio figures were. Mm. And even though the Spice Girls were number one, we'd like surpassed the Spice Girls by about a thousand plays or, or even more in plays in the UK in one week. So yes, it broke records, which is a lovely accolade. And not, not many people ever asked me about no. that. But, you know, it was a music week, so it must be true. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, right, so that's my pick. I wanted to highlight good enough. If I was going to ask you to pick a couple of songs or moments of this album, what would be your choices? Oh, God, that's really difficult. I've got, there's, there's obviously every single song has got memories, some some a lot more than others. Mm. Right, okay. I, w- I would probably go with the single If You're Thinking Of Me. That was that was a sort of song that had been hanging around since about the start of 94, I suppose. And it had been around and I just hadn't, I, I think I'd written it on the guitar originally and then I started doing it on the piano at Wessex with Richard actually, and we just sort of went through it and we thought, yeah, it's piano, but I did it. Basically, I recorded the song on guitar with my vocal and I finished the whole arrangement and song and just went, you can do what you want with it now. Because during when I was playing it, I remember, you know when your your sort of hair's gone on your your arms? Mm. I was singing and playing it and that happened and I thought, well, if we've recorded that, that must be great. So 
I knew that it had an emo that emotion attached to it, or I captured that somehow because it's that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to capture the emotion of what what the song means right at that moment, you know, and it changes. But uh, yeah, and so then you know the band got hold of it, and you know we started working on it, and that has real special memories in the sense that I remember, I just remember feeling I've got this, mm. I've got this. It just you know it's and, and I you, I don't feel that very often. I record a lot, and you know that, that's very rare that you get that. You know, you, you, it was a lot of work to do though, and I find that these days because I'm not in the studio as much, or with the band as much, or in that setting where there's a producer and an injury, it's a lot harder to make decisions. Is it the special songs that hang around? Because you mentioned that was a couple of a few years before it was written and it kind of came to fruition during this album. Is it the ones that you know kind of have that little nugget of potential that you don't quite trash and you don't throw them away because they're not happening? Yeah, I mean it's, it's a funny one actually because I've I've spent the last eighteen months or even two years I took a, a few months off at the start of twenty twenty not to realise that it would be actually two years near enough but I started writing again and just going through and I tried to stop writing new ideas because I love writing new ideas I mean it's like a drug coming up with like a melody and chorus and a chord sequence uh, and combine them and and just I love that but finishing them is very difficult especially when it's on your own you know these days it seems to be a lot on my own so I really have to push myself to finish them and it's what for? What am I finishing them for? <laughs> am I finishing <laughs> for another album? Not really. Do I want to do another album? Well, I do, you know, but it's, it's difficult these days. I think it's very different different industry to navigate, whereas before it was quite simple. It was go to the studio, record something, put it out. It's in the shops. Now there's not shops for that. There's, you know, it's like, really, you know, it's different. And I think that I've kind of, in the industry where I've kind of lost my way in a bit, but I still really love creating music. And I suppose my industry now is making live music and doing yeah. stuff live. Pick me another track off the album that you uh, you have special memories connected to. Um, oh God, there's, uh, so there's loads, isn't there? I'm trying to think, probably Long Life. Long Life was a song and a chord sequence that I'd had for quite a long time. And it was, it was stretched right back to the days of Lovebirds. And it's very similar to Lovebirds in a way, in the sort of chord progression or one of them. And then the idea was that it was when it's, it's taken from the story of George Orwell's Animal Farm. And basically there's a moment in Animal Farm that is just when the book explodes open. When I read the book Animal Farm, which I've read for, for over loads of times in my mm. life, when I read it and I kept going back, what is, where's the moment? And the moment was when the animals get together because uh, I think it's Napoleon has asked them all to get together in the barn and they're all there and at 12 o'clock midnight they're all to be quiet. And he stands up and says, I had a dream, which is very similar to Martin Luther King, by the way. And, you know, but pre Martin Luther King, mm -hmm. you know, and I had a dream that we would stand up against the humans, the farmers, and uh, we would become one. And it was that moment where they had belief and they sh they heard the words together for the first time. So I took that moment and wrote Long Life, which was, this has been a long life. It's kind of like I just built on the character a little bit and the moment a little bit. And yeah, and I felt that that, had, that has a lot of passion. It's a, it's a sort of fire song. It sort of, uh, you know, encapsulates something, you know, that we're in it together. The two songs we've talked about, or two of the songs we've talked about, have very different starting points in terms of inspiration. Good Enough coming from a very personal place, Long Life coming from literature. Are you the type of songwriter that will almost magpie your inspiration from anywhere? It doesn't have to be a particular source. Um, 
question that one. I think that I will write about a situation that's happening to me or a situation that is happening around me and happening to somebody else. So a little bit like an empath, I try and, I don't try, but I actually feel sometimes the emotion and I can, you know, and so, you know, I had a, a friend die last week or not last week, his, his funeral was last week and it opens up a lot of uh, memories mm. and feelings. And, you know, and at the weekend as a cathartic thing, I was at a festival and I needed a little bit of space to myself, went to my van and wrote a song about him and about us and about right. them. And, you know, and I feel that that's a good way for me to sort of deal with things. Unfortunately, I am quite a political person, but I really try and sort of guide my politics into not the grey, black and white area that politics is, but into a more, you know, more creative area. You know, that's what I'm trying to do. I find that politics is really, everything's political now. It's such a political world and it's hard not to have a, you know, because I don't like people that are willfully ignorant, you know, Mm. of things. I, I think it's really important to be aware of what's going on and to stand up when you see injustice and stuff like that but it's it's a real art form to be able to get that across in a creative way where you know I don't want to bring people down by mentioning the Brex word or do you know what I mean <laughs> I don't I don't I really don't because I see it myself but I have done in the past and that's me learning about my punk sort of like you know ranting and do you know what I mean yeah, I think yeah. going back to the album it was released in 1996 which was very much the height of Britpop and I think you were seen maybe not by yourselves but certainly by others as being very much part of that Britpop scene and I remember there being a few kind of Oasis versus Blur style rivalry rumours around you and other bands was there really an acrimony between Dodgy and your fellow Britpop scene bands or was that something that was completely hyped by the press? It was a funny time. I must admit that it was very competitive. Don't think that's like it is now. It was like, you know, nowadays everyone talks to each other and because we have a shared thing. I mean, yes, you know, we had support bands. So, I mean, we, you know, Oasis, Cast, Space, you know, everyone played with us and supported us. And we used to get on. But one of our first gigs we ever did was supporting the Manic Street Preachers. And I just remember walking into their backstage area and going, hi, guys. And they just totally blanked us. <laughs> and I thought, wow, wow. You know, I'd not come across that before sort of thing. And so, yeah, there was a little bit of that about it. The industry seemed to have managers who were saying, I don't want you to be, you know, seen with these guys and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. There was a lot of that. And it wasn't a very... So it was a very competitive time, really. We had our friends in in the industry who, you know, we hung out with, who we'd found. But, you know, we didn't try and be cool and try and act because we weren't. (laughs) Let's face it, we're not cool. (laughs) We weren't cool. And it's like, you know, I don't think we did fit into the Britpop thing because, you know, we didn't really fit into, you know, how can you wear Fred Perry and dress like a mod when you know it's just a fashion statement and five years or well, 10 years earlier, you used to call people plastic mods because they weren't punks anymore. Do you know what I mean? And it was like, I think that, you know, it was, it'd be sacrilege to do that, you know, to, to sort of just try and cash in because you're wearing mod clothes. Because that was that was what Britpop was, really. It was Fred Perry's and Adidas. Yeah. And, and it still is. And it's like, I'm glad we didn't go that way. I mean, we, we do it in our own way, which we had to. We were dodgy. We had to go our own way. There was no other way for us. It's the best way to be. 
So it is the best way to be, yeah. I'm assuming looking at the timelines of when stuff happened, you left Dodgy in 1998, which I guess would have been the end of the cycle for this album after recording, releasing, touring. Yeah. That would have been the natural kind of tail off of this album. What was it that made you want to start afresh to move away from the band? Uh, I don't know. I think there was a combination of things. And I think that really amongst that, I think I sort of hit a point where I was like, well, what am I writing about now? Mm. What have I got to say? Do you know what I mean? I think there was a little bit of that, you know, by becoming a dad and a family person, I wasn't sort of experiencing, I don't know, I didn't, or I didn't feel I was experiencing anything that I wanted to share, you know, as a song. And I think that possibly behind it, and this is in hindsight, possibly behind a lot of my situation at the time was, you know, I was insecure about my own abilities. I think I was youngish. I was struggling to believe that I was the person that I thought I was in an met, you know, like a, a sort of imposter syndrome. You know, I think a lot of artists, and especially people that come from the background that sort of I did, where, you know, we were factory fodder or really, and generally speaking, a comprehensive education. You're not really, and from a small town, there's not much expected of you. And I think I felt that ultimately I was out of my depth. <laughs> I know I wasn't, but I just felt that, that I didn't belong. And so I think that I was hit with a massive level of insecurity and sort of after the dodgy thing, I lost a lot of confidence and really I could have, you know, gone on to do a solo thing, but I just didn't have the, I don't know. I just didn't want to put myself through it. I suppose, you know, it took a few, it took a few years to get, you know, back to what I wanted to do again. I think what you describe is something that anyone who works in any kind of creative industry goes through everyone has that imposter syndrome it's whether you're honest whether you have yeah. it or not is, is the uh, no it's exactly exactly nigel it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you about <laughs> this classic album i've really enjoyed it what what are you doing nowadays I mean, you mentioned you're doing a bit of songwriting you're potentially thinking about putting out an album yeah i'm actually i'm right now in my studio so i'm sort of in the last 18 months i've been i've been doing stuff I've been doing stuff with Chris Helm and Mark Morris. That's been really good. We're just mm. sort of like doing, um, we're songwriting together. As soon as we get some time, which is very difficult at the moment because we're all so busy because we haven't been for ages. Doing stuff with them guys, which is just a, a sort of songwriting thing. But we all sing, so it's about three-part harmonies, mm. which is great and acoustic. I've got a tour coming up with Shed 7 in December. So that's going to be really exciting. Uh, just, a, you know, so yeah, looking forward to that. And then... I've got this, I've got quite a lot of electronic gear that I've just started spending over lockdown, getting it all connected. So now I'm doing like electronic music, but adapting acoustic and songs. I just feel that I'm, I'm avoiding computers, so it's live. Right. So I do it live. So I'm probably going to do a few lockdown gigs where they're sort of like, I don't know, electronic forays and stuff like that with hopefully songs in there. But it's not necessarily the important thing. It's just like, I don't know, I'm interested in it. It keeps me, uh, it keeps me active. Sounds like it. Look forward yeah. to hearing it as and when it comes. But Nigel, pleasure to talk to you. Thanks very much for your time on the Excess Long Player. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Excess Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Excess Manchester. We are done. Cheers for your ears. Enjoyed that. Good chat with Nigel Clark from Dodgy about Free Piece Suite. There is loads more to go out in this series. If this is the first podcast you've heard on the Excess Long Player series, Take a look back at the other albums we've talked about, the other classic pieces of music discussed with people who helped make those classic pieces of music. Cheers to your ears. I'll see you next time on the Excess Long Player. Manchester's indie rock and roll station, Excess Manchester.